Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to kind of be jumping in uh, where we left off last week. Um, the, uh, the, the goal is, is for us to always look at the full counsel of God's Word. Uh, and so the way we do that here in our teaching and preaching and singing and praying um, is to, to walk uh, verse by verse through Scripture, uh, which is our primary uh, way of, of leading this church. Um, and Trent and I were having a conversation this morning about where we're going to be today, and there's just a number of things that fly up. Um, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So for some of you, that makes you a little uncomfortable, right? You might come from a background where that stuff gets, that's for the crazy wild people at, at, at the church down the street. It's not for us. We're or, orderly and organized. Uh, for some of you, you probably like, thank God we're finally talking about the Holy Spirit because um, in, in, a, in a way where he comes with power, not that we don't ignore uh, the Spirit whenever he, he comes up in Scripture. We've talked plenty in, in the book of John just alone in the last couple of years about that. Um, so that's where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 2. And I was telling Trent, you know, this is one of those places where I could have probably gone a, a number of ways. Well, we could have taken this, this text, this passage where we are today, and go uh, um, a, a, a different direction. Um, and so one of the things that I had to do was probably some of the most work I had to do uh, with a text is, is to really like determine, okay, uh, this, is, this is how it fits in our journey through the book of Acts. And so that's where we're going we're gonna to be looking at some specific ideas today. And what we learned so far through the book of Acts, um, as we've journeyed through chapter 1, we've spent a few weeks just, do, we, we spent our first week just kind of doing a flyby of the entire book of Acts just to kind of see the main theme. And then we kind of backed up back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and we just kind of started going to work in, in those verses. Uh, and the big idea uh, um, of Acts, basically, is like when we, when we, like when Jesus gave up his life on the cross and when Jesus was raised uh, from the tomb three days later, he didn't disengage from the world. And that's really important for us to know, really important for us to understand it. Like just because Jesus ascended into heaven doesn't mean that he disconnected himself from the world. And that's why that's like the big idea, the main point of Acts is that we see that, that, that Jesus is still at work. Like his mission is still moving forward. And instead of disengaging, uh, he took his place in heaven where he rules and reigns even as I speak. Like Jesus is still very much engaged in this world. And from this place where he sits, rather than his work just kind of halting, rather than it just stopping whenever he ascended into heaven during his absence or, or at his absence, um, I would even venture to say that his work is accelerating. Like he, he, he gave some instructions, I'll refer to it in, in, in John, where he says, this is a good thing when I step out of the way and let the Spirit start leading the they're going to kick off. It's really going to accelerate. The mission's really going to move. Um, and so that's happening in the church. We see it in the, in the early church, and, and it's happening uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not disconnected from this world, and Jesus is not disengaged from this world just because he's physically absent, but he's actually sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over everything, and he calls the, he calls the shots. And so the mission, David mentioned this a couple of weeks back, the mission of blessing all the families of the earth that was given way back in Genesis chapter 12, the mission of blessing all the families of the earth, it continues the mission of blessing all the families in the face of suffering continues. And the mission of blessing every family in the face of opposition continues. Blessing every family in a culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus is still the mission. Blessing every family in the world that might even be hostile towards Jesus. That's the work of the church. That's a promise that God made. He made with Abraham and has passed to even us. That we are, we are meant to go and bless all the families of the earth regardless of race, regardless of culture, of background, of attitude toward Jesus. That's why we're here. And so that's the big idea of Acts. That's what we pick up in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to do some, some background, uh, a little bit of work background, because I know a lot of you are probably here for the first time, and so I want to kind of catch you guys up uh, of where we are in the story. Jesus died on a Friday, uh, and he was put in a tomb. On Sunday, he rose from the grave, and after this, he spent about 40 days with his disciples. And he was teaching them. In those 40 days, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. 
he was teaching them and unpacking for them all the things that was getting ready to happen, all the things that was fixing to unfold for them. And at the end of this 40-day period, at the very end, Jesus would gather up his disciples and he tells them, basically, that they would become witnesses of this good news of the kingdom. That they were going to be the agents that go and proclaim the good news about this kingdom that he had been teaching about and that he was set up as ruler over and king over. And they would begin to tell people. And it's, it's interesting the way Jesus, Jesus laid that out. He said, you know, he, he said, this, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witness. It, what, it, and, and a lot of times we take the commands and the, and, the, and the mission of God as somewhat of an obligation, as somewhat of a responsibility, right? Where it's like, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to do this. And Jesus said, no, you will be my disciples. Not you should be my disciples. Not that you should carry this message. Not that you should go and be witnesses, but that you will be. You will be witnesses. And you will be telling people of this gospel, and you will be telling it in your immediate city. And then when you tell people the gospel in your immediate city, which for them was Jerusalem, he said, you're going to step outside of the city walls. You're going to go out into the regions of of Judea and Samaria, and you're going to tell them about the kingdom there. And everybody you come across, I want you to tell them about this kingdom. And then you're going to even go to the far stretches of the dirt to tell people this good news. And he says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And immediately following that, immediately following that, in verse 9, chapter 1, we're just going to pick that up for a second. He says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Does anyone else think this is kind of weird? I think, really, like I, we, we read the Scripture so much, and we don't, we don't always stop and put ourselves in the shoes. What if you were there? What if you were sitting in that group of, uh, of disciples and Jesus was talking to you and your, your few little friends and then all of a sudden that happens? That a cloud took him out of your sight? And he's telling these guys what's going to happen and that they needed to stay put until he empowers them with the Spirit. Don't go anywhere just yet because I have to give you something that's going to give you the ability to accomplish the task. On your own, it's impossible for you to accomplish the task of going and preach the kingdom of good news to the ends of the earth. And so you need to wait until I give you the source of power, which is the Holy Spirit. And while he's talking, literally he's lifting up into the sky and a cloud carries him away. That's a little bit weird. I haven't experienced that in my life yet. I haven't seen that yet. And so you you think about it like, what are, you, what are you thinking about? What are your questions when you're sitting in this circle of, of guys when, when Jesus is, is communicating to you and then all of a sudden a cloud just kind of sweeps in and picks him up and carries him away? I've got a lot of practical questions, right? But then I'm thinking, where's he going? What is he doing? Where is he, where is he going? Why is he leaving? He's leaving us with this task. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who can accomplish all this stuff, he's telling us that we have to do it, and he's, he's leaving us. And so here's what I want to unpack for us just for a little bit. Um, kind of a, kind of a, a rabbit I'm going to chase. Um, this is a sad reality for many, many believers, that this is about where the story stops. It might be for you in here today, that you experience Jesus You experience the call of Jesus on your life, and then Jesus says, now go, and that's where your story stopped. That's where it ended for you. On the one end, so many believers, so many believers put a strong emphasis on Christmas, right? The birth of Jesus. So many Christians put a strong emphasis on Good Friday, it's when we commemorate when Jesus gave his life on the cross. And, and so many Christians and even non-Christians will put an emphasis on Easter, the day that Jesus overcame the grave. And then on the other end, we get madly obsessed with the end times and when Jesus is coming back. And then there's this whole middle moment that's going on that we completely forsake. 
And we completely forget about it. We say, you know what? This moment is really, really important. And that moment is really, really important. And in the middle of all of this, I'm just going to live in God's grace. And I'm going to do what everybody else does. And I'm going to say the same things that everybody else says. And I'm going to walk like everybody else walks. And I'm just going to walk this normal life. Because there was something that happened over there that's going to take care of me over here. And in the middle is mine. I hope that lands on some of you heavy today. I hope it lands on some of you heavy. Because that is a sad reality. And I think a lot of reason is because we're not sure what to do in this in-between moment. What am I supposed to do in this moment? God saved me. God sent his son to die for me because he loves me. And he paid the price for my sin. And I put my faith in Jesus. So now, I'm waiting for his return to come in and bring me into his presence, into his glory. And not really sure what, in the meantime, what's supposed to happen. And my hope is that like, what we encounter in our passage this morning would radically change the way you think about this middle moment in your life. Radically change the, the way you and I envision our role in this in this moment, namely the arrival of the Holy Spirit and, and his arrival in a different and powerful way because here's the deal. You can't even talk about Christianity without talking about the Spirit. You can't have a conversation about Christianity without talking about the Spirit because Pentecost changed everything. Pentecost shifted everything in God's story. This day where they would observe, the 50th day literally is what this meant. Pentecost means 50th. It's 50 days since Passover. You remember what happened on Passover. Now we're out at Pentecost. Jesus was the final and full Passover lamb. And now here we are 50 days later. Jesus has just ascended, left his, left his band of, of misfits to go and carry this message. And they're here observing the law and observing the harvest and they're having a celebration time. That's what this day was, was all about. And the Apostle Paul would even remind us during this day, the Apostle Paul would even remind us that those without the Spirit don't even belong to Jesus. Right? So you can't say that you even belong to Jesus, that you are even a Christian without the Spirit, without having the Spirit. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was one of the high points of God's story. It was this piece of the story that everyone, Jesus, his apostles, all of them were sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for. Do you remember in John chapter 16 when Jesus said, hey, God, it is to your advantage that I go away so that the helper can come, that the spirit can come. Like they were all waiting on the edge of their seats for this. And while there's so many implications, like I said, that we can, there's, there's so much treasure and so much truth in this passage where we're going to be, that I just want to gaze at maybe just a couple, just zoom in on a couple of things that have, and when I say it's eternal implications for us, on how you and I, how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ in this middle moment, in this middle space. Yeah, we celebrate that side of the story where God sent his son into this world, that God gave his son as an atonement for our sins, and that he's coming again in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his, his kingship to rule and reign forever with, when we get to join him in that. But what about this, this middle moment? And so if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read chapter, Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 21. You can follow along here in your scriptures, or you can follow along on the screens. It says, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, you remember that's the 50th day after Passover, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude came, to, at, at, at the, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Very, very important. Very pivotal. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's so significant about this passage that we just read, what is, what is so vital about this passage that, that what, is, what are the implications that stretches into this moment? What are the implications that stretch into this part of our neighborhood, into North Sulphur? What are the implications that stretch even into this room today, into this group? One major implication I want to point out is, is to consider this, that God's presence is now moving from places to people. It's his, the way his spirit operates, the way his presence operates has now shifted. This isn't the first time we're introduced to the spirit of God in, in his story. In the Old Testament, we saw the spirit all the time. It was all throughout the Old Testament, but the spirit functioned in, in a somewhat of a different way. He would only dwell in particular places, special places. Or, I'm sorry, in, in, in particular and special people. You think about prophets, you think about kings, people who had a broad audience, people who had influence over a broad audience. That's who God would communicate through and work through and his, his presence would, would dwell with in, in the power of the Spirit. And he dwelt in particular places. And I don't want to counter the, the omnipresence of God, meaning that God is everywhere all at once, all throughout Scripture. We see that God stands outside of the expanse of time, and he can see all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. And so I don't want to counter that, but what we see in the Old Testament, time and time again, is God choosing to allow his presence to dwell in a special place, in a dramatic way, in really unique places. Give you a couple examples. We open up the story, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We see God dwelling in the garden. His presence is in the garden with, with Adam and Eve. Not that he wasn't present everywhere else, but he was especially present in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And then you'd see in Genesis chapter 3 when the story started to become unwound because of sin. Whenever Adam and Eve decided that they could be better gods than God himself. What you see at that moment is that they were banished from the garden. Now, the important thing is, is that they're not, like, what's more tragic than them being banished from the garden, what we really need to remember is that they were banished from God's presence. That's, that's, the, that's the tragedy of that story, is that he dwelt in this place in a very special way, and his presence was there in this Garden of Eden, and now they're banished from that. And when you get to the, to the book of Exodus, we're not going to look at these places, but I just want to pick them up. You meet this guy named Moses. He's wandering around the desert. He comes up on this place this, where this bush is burning, and it's not being consumed. It's kind of this weird thing that's going on. And quickly he realizes that this is the presence of God here in this place. And so God's presence is dwelling in this burning bush in a special way, in a special place here. 
And Moses would even back up and kick off his sandals and say, this is holy ground. As if to imply that the ground over there is not holy. Although God exists everywhere, he's present everywhere. This place especially, God's presence is dwelling here in a very special way. This is holy ground. And so by the end of Exodus, we see God's presence dwell in a special place called the tabernacle. And this was just this giant tent. God had kind of gave instructions to the Israelites on, on what he required for the tabernacle. tabernacle. And this was where sin, sin, uh, sacrifices for sin um, were made. God's presence would come down in a consuming fire and uniquely dwell in that special place at that special time. Fast forward to 2 Samuel. We find the presence of God uniquely dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. This is another place where God's presence uniquely dwells. You get to to 1 Kings and you'll see that the tabernacle has now been replaced with the temple. And so now this is the the big moment. This is the, the, the place where God especially dwells. His presence is very powerful there in a special way at the temple. Not that he wasn't present over everything, over the expanse of the universe, but especially at the temple. And so here's the big idea. If you and I were, were Jews in this culture and, and, and we ran into one another, we might have a conversation that goes something like this. Hey, did you experience the presence of God today? And I might say, you know what? No, I didn't. I, didn't. I wasn't able to make it to the temple to experience the presence of God. Did you experience the presence of God? Like, yes, I did. I was able to make it to the temple. I was able to worship God there. He came in a very powerful way. He moved in a very powerful way. Now, so do you see the burden? I'm telling you all this because I want you burden. I can experience the presence of God if I get to this certain place or if I'm around these certain, if I get to this certain place in my life, I can experience the presence of God. So to do this, you would have to journey to a particular place, a special place. And if you were a foreigner, someone who lived far off, someone who didn't live near the temple, this would be a a very rigorous journey for you to try to go and experience the, 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 the presence of God, to have an encounter there. And so you see this massive shift taking place now in Acts chapter 2. And I want to pick up in verse 1. I want to read the full, verse, first four verses again. Starting verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the dramatic shift that's going on is that God's presence is moving from particular places, special places, and now they're just dwelling with people. His, his presence is now dwelling with people. And I want you to just listen, not just with People, but God's presence is dwelling in people through the power of the Spirit. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Like, like understand this for just a minute. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you if you are one who aligns yourself with Jesus Christ today, says, I follow Jesus, my faith belongs to Jesus, whether you feel this way or not, the very presence of God, the one that at one time dwelt in the garden, the one at one time dwelt in a burning bush, The one that at one time dwelt in the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and in the temple now dwells in you. That same power, that same presence of God dwells in you. So no longer this particular place, but inside people. And so up to this point, you couldn't step into the presence of God and provide an acceptable sacrifice for sin. We couldn't even approach the temple without first having our sin dealt with. The dilemma of our sin had to be dealt with before we can even approach God. And if we did so without addressing the dilemma of our sin, we would be consumed by God. He is holy, He is righteous, He is just, and we are exactly the opposite. Every one of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us do good. No, not one. We don't know good. We're children of wrath by nature. And so God has to do something. And in order for us to even approach him, our sin dilemma has to be dealt with. And so this is the beauty of the cross. You remember, this is, we're 50 days past that moment. That beautiful exchange that took place at the cross where Jesus went there and made the full and final atonement, taking our sin and our brokenness and our shame and exchanging it, giving us his righteousness. And his holiness. Imagine that. 
because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we have been forgiven by God. That's hard for us to accept. That's easy to say, but it's hard for us to accept. The writer of Hebrews would say it like this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, listen up for those of you who feel like you have to labor to try to... God's forgiveness, I want you to listen to this. In Christ, every sin has been forgiven. Every sin that you will commit, have committed, is forgiven in Christ. Here it says, for, a, for all time, a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, him, his body, his offering, his sacrifice, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. I want you to walk in that freedom today, knowing that just because you messed up, you did something that was counter to God, that you were walking in obedience, that you short somewhere, you belong to Christ. He's paid for that. Walk in that freedom. Don't carry the shame. He's, he's made the great exchange for you. Skip down to verse 18 of Hebrews 10, where there is forgiveness of these. There is no longer any offering for sin. It's finished. It's done. So another beautiful reality is that God is no longer dwelling in these special people. And what I mean is he's not dwelling in special people exclusively. Gone are the days when you had to be a prophet or a king or someone important or someone with a large audience. Look at what Peter says, just jumping down. We're going to jump around Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what God is saying in Acts 2 is that his presence and power are no longer exclusive to certain people, to certain places, to these special exclusive uh, people, but all flesh, the broken flesh, the poor flesh, the marginalized flesh, the rich flesh, the prominent flesh, the humble flesh, the intelligent flesh, the ineligible, uneducated flesh, the needy flesh. His spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Because of Jesus, anyone can be filled with the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit for the work that was done on the cross. Another beautiful thing that we pick up is that God's He's no longer dwelling in these special places. You no longer have to come to a particular place to have an encounter with God. I hope you did come to this place thinking that there was something special about this place today that is not any less special about the place that you came from. God is now no longer dwelling in just specific places. You don't have to come here to have your sins forgiven. You don't have to come here to get right with God. Wherever you are, God is there and he wants to be made right with you. Jesus had this other idea. In verse 8, chapter 1, backing up to Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the presence of God will go to those who are far off rather than the far off having to come to the presence of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing that you and I don't to journey to Jerusalem today to go experience the presence of God. But he empowered his people to go and carry the good news to the ends of the earth, even Sulphur, Louisiana, so that we can ex to experience the presence of God in a very special and real way. Christianity is not primarily a come and see deal here, okay? And that's, we get so hung up with that. You know what? The, 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 the height, the pinnacle of all of our evangelism would say, I invited my friend to church. Like the, for, for many of us, that's about as zealous of an evangelist as we can get. But Christianity is about a go-and-tell way of life. You see Jesus empowering his people. Now go and tell them. Go and tell them this good news. So what this means then is your calling as a believer is not to sit and wait for your coworker to notice you do something good and then come and ask you about it. Your calling then is to go to your coworker and say, can we have lunch? Can we come sit around, take a break together? I just want to share with you how good God is, how much he's done for us. Like, 
That's our call. We're to be actively going and telling of this good news, not passively waiting for an experience to happen, and hopefully we get to say something. And that's the major shift in Acts chapter 2. And this, uh, this, another dramatic shift that would take place is that Jesus is baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Whoa. He's doing what? He's baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. Ch- Acts chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. You remember where he said this? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Hey, you jokers don't go anywhere because you can't pull nothing off by yourself, so stay right here and wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Two weeks ago, we got to celebrate a baptism here. Um, What you and I experienced in that moment was that friends and family uh, got together together. and there was this moment of public declaration where, where serenity said, my faith has now been put in Jesus. My life now belongs to Jesus. And the way we symbolize that, that's what bat, water baptism is, a symbol, symbolizing the, 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 the act of putting one's faith in Christ, following Jesus, making that public declaration. We immersed her body in water as a means to say, my old life. And we raise her from the water saying, I am raised in new life with Christ Jesus, the one who, who was the ultimate resurrection, who allowed for this to take place. That's, that's what we're symbolizing in that moment. Now, when someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, think about that picture that we have. What's actually going on there is a complete immersion of the Holy Spirit into someone's life. That's what's going on in that moment. That's why Jesus uses that terminology. And why does it matter? If you go back, remember, we're talking about Luke here. The guy Luke who wrote the book of Acts was also the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And this is volume two of a two-volume work that he did. And and if you go back to that Gospel, uh, you can watch the life and ministry of Jesus unfold. And then something beautiful happens in chapter three of Luke, uh, of the Gospel of Luke. He's baptized. And in that moment that he's baptized, the heavens would open up. Uh, and and the, the glory of God would shine. The Holy Spirit would descend down on him in bodily form, it says, like a dove. And God's voice would come from heaven and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Like That's what's all going on in that moment. So, so Jesus is pretty much kicking off his public ministry at this moment where he was, was baptized. And, and, and as he kicks off this public ministry, what that includes is healing the sick. What that includes is casting out evil spirits, raising people from the dead. That's what his ministry looked like, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And as he did that, he performed many miraculous signs. He's doing his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know what you all are probably thinking. You're probably thinking the same thing that I thought for a long time. Why would Jesus need the Holy Spirit if he's already God? Like, why would that need to take place? If Jesus is already God, couldn't he already accomplish those things? He's God, right? Buckle up. This, is, this comes, from our, uh, comes from my understanding. I'll, I'll share uh, just maybe personally how I interact with that. Um, for a long time, I felt like Jesus, you know, where this, he looks like just a regular, average, everyday, blue-collar citizen, right? But if you and I know that if I was to fire a shot at Clark Kent, uh, he, would, he would demolish me. Why? Because he's Superman. He's not, he's not a real person. He's a, he's a superhuman. He's not of this natural world. And sadly, we'll look at Jesus the same way. We'll look at Jesus like, well, he kind of looks like a regular guy, but really he's just kind of like, like, like flesh wrapped up in, in, in God, right? And he's like really fully God, but he just kind of gives this impression that he's, that he's a regular guy. And that's, and that's why he's able to do all those miracles, Blake. Like that's why he's able to resist temptation, Blake. That's why he's able to trust God in the most darkest moments of his life, Blake, because he was God. I hope you're starting to see the flaw in this belief. How was this guy ever to identify with us? Right? If we get to say he's that guy, he does that thing over there because he's God, he could pull it off. The reason why I can't resist temptation is because I'm human. The reason I can't do miraculous things is because I'm human. And this is what I want to show you, that I want Paul's words to, to caution you if that's the way you think. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul would say, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? His divinity. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus never ceased to be God. Don't hear me say that. Jesus never ceased to be God, but rather than living out of this divine he made the choice to lay down those rights and live in this human nature, but he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. So now do you see how we can now identify with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we too can resist temptation, we too can walk in obedience, that we too can do many miraculous things because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we too are to carry the same message, to bring the same hope to the world that Jesus brought. And when you look at Jesus loving people who hate him, who despise him and want to kill him, his ability to love those people doesn't come because he's God. His ability to love people who hate him and dislike him is because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how he's able to do that. And when he, when he prays over a blind person and their sight is restored, it wasn't because he was God. It was because he was ministering out of the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to recall what he said in Acts chapter 1. He would gather his crew together and he'd tell them, look, I want you to go bear witness of me to the city. I want you to go to Jerusalem and tell them about me. I want you to go to the regions of Judea and Samaria and I want you to tell them about all of this goodness there. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. But wait, I need to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You have to have this kind of power to go and to accomplish this kind of mission. Because we're not God. We're humans. But we're humans filled with the Spirit. And Luke has intentionally laid out his writings so that we see this. In his gospel, Jesus is not doing ministry. You see that. And then Jesus uh, uh, is, the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. And now Jesus is doing ministry. And then you see him replay that in Acts chapter 2 with the same progression. Don't go. Let me empower you with the Spirit. Now go. It's that same progression. And the immediate result of this indwelling Spirit that we see in the book of Acts is declaration. The first thing you see them do when the Spirit, uh, it, it, they are baptized in the Spirit is they begin to speak. Speaking is the normal reaction an immediate and normal reaction for someone who's baptized in the Spirit. So you're not off the hook. If you know, you know, I'm kind of an introvert and I don't like talking to people. I love Jesus. Eh. No. At a bare minimum, you're speaking. You're, you're declaring. And not just any kind of speaking, right? You, what you saw them do was speak in tongues. Uh-oh. Getting a little warmer in here. Now, we don't have time to cover all that in, what entails with that, okay? Um, if you would like, I'd love to hang back, grab coffee with you or something like that. I can tell you where I stand with that. Uh, but that's not where we're going to go today. I want to describe to you what's going on in this passage, in this, this place, because this is where we are today. In verse four, chapter 2, verse 4, you see, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word tongues literally literally. They're speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak in other languages. And we saw in this passage reading where we went through this whole thing, there were all diff kinds of different people from Jeru in Jerusalem at that time. They were coming from all over the place. And they become amazed because they're able to understand these guys in their own language. And they say, you know what, That's not, they're not supposed to be able to speak in our own language. We're, we're from like another place in the world. And how are these guys even speaking in our own language? So what's happening in this moment Track with me. The reversal of Babel is happening in this moment. You remember the, the story of the Tower of Babel? Where, where uh, everyone had come together. Let's read it. John, uh, Genesis chapter 11. Let's read it together. Um, is where the story is. Um, we might burn up a little time doing that, but I think it's important. So if you go to Genesis chapter 11, we'll read just a little bit of it. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. How about that? 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. It's a wicked thing to want to build a name for yourself. Hear me. It's a wicked thing to want to build a name for yourself. Lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us... Talking, he's, there's some, some trinity right there. Let us go down and, and, they're, and they're confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. What's happening at Pentecost is the reversal of what happened at Babel. Everything's starting to be made right now. At Babel, the languages were confused and the nations were scattered. But at Pentecost, the language barrier was overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered in Christ. That, that the gospel can reach out, that, that there's not a language barrier that's going to stop the movement of God. You remember the main theme of this story, right? Opposition always comes, but the gospel always advances. Language barrier would be one of those options, but the gospel will advance. And you see it happening here. At Babel, earth proudly made an attempt to ascend to heaven. But at Pentecost, heaven humbly descended to earth. It's, it's the curse is being undone. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. With the indwelt Holy Spirit, we declare, but we just don't declare anything. Look at verse 11, the second part of verse 11. They say, we hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of God. We see the apostle Peter, he would later stand up. And what does he do? Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter would stand and lift his voice is what the scripture says. That was the natural response to being filled with the Spirit, was that declaration would take place, that the voice would be lifted from God's people telling this good news. He would declare the gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he accomplished. So that is the normal reaction for you and I as followers of Jesus who've been given the Holy Spirit to declare the good news, to tell the good news, to speak the good news about Jesus and all that he's accomplished. And we've been given this Holy Spirit, not just so we could hang out in our Sunday morning gatherings. And we've been given this Holy Spirit, not just so we could hang out in our weekly small groups. We've been given this Holy Spirit, not just so we can spend time with, at our family meals together. We are primarily given the Holy Spirit's, the Spirit to be a witness to declare this good news to people who need to hear it. That's our primary role. Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that, that all of those means that we spend time together are not an enormous and beautiful benefit. They are. But we're primarily given the Spirit to be witnesses, to declare the good news. And this is the privilege of every believer, not just for the pastors and the missionaries and the professional holy men. It's for every believer Another result of this indwelling Holy Spirit in Acts 2 is power itself. Just the, the fact of sheer power. I love how this book unfolds for us. What we'll get to see throughout the entire book of Acts is the disciples begin eerily acting like who? Like Jesus. Right? You see, you'll see in one instance, just in, in a few weeks from now, some radical generosity. Right? Like people do some abnormal things. They say, oh, there's a need in the church? Well, let me go see stuff that I have to make sure that the need is met. Whatever it takes, sacrificial generosity was what we see. You would see a man who's crippled being healed at the hands of these apostles. You would see many signs and wonders done among the people at the hands of these apostles. We'll see apostles joyfully enduring physical suffering. 
and persecution for the sake of the gospel. You'll see paralytics healed. You'll see dead people raised to life. Does that not look like the ministry of Jesus taking place? Yes. We'll see a man who is standing in opposition to the gospel, and at Paul's command, he can't see anymore. He's blind. We see all these in the book of Acts. And so we can go on and on and on and on through this, seeing how that same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to accomplish all that he accomplished is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in us who trust and follow him. And so there's something very supernatural about the early church. You see that in the book of Acts. It was evident to everyone around that church that something, something crazy is going on. This isn't normal what's going on with those people. Something supernatural is happening. Normal people can't accomplish what these people are accomplishing. God, I pray for the day that they say that about us. I pray for that day that something abnormal is going on. They're accomplishing things that can only be done by the power of God. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in these normal, everyday, average people that enabled them to carry this good news to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when, when we look at Acts and we think, wow, man, that's crazy. Like, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. How many of you feel like that right now? I'm going to raise my hand. I don't see it happen no more. I don't see this. It's crazy. But I want you to strongly consider what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. And who is now reigning from heaven. He has poured out his Holy Spirit. Who is the source of our power to continue this mission. That's what the book of Acts is. It's just showing us that God's mission of, of blessing all the families on the earth is continuing. Through people. Through regular ordinary people. And finally and most importantly. And this is. I don't know where you land in all of these things. I'm going to try to wrap this up right quick. Um, but the. I'm going to say the most important thing about the indwelling of God's Spirit, of God's presence in our life, is that it purifies us. It purifies our hearts. And I want to just take you to a passage where Paul's writing to the church at Galatians chapter 5. He says, Let's say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Are you, gratis, are you gratifying the desires of your flesh right now? I would say that you're not walking by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of your flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. I don't want to always follow Jesus. I don't want to always spend my time telling people of the good news of Jesus. I don't always want to spend my time serving other people. I want my time. I want my comfort. I want my convenience. They can have leftovers. If there's anything leftovers, there's anything of my time left over, anything of my money left over, they can have that. That's my flesh warring against the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Therefore, I don't have to do stuff anymore to try to earn God's favor, right? I'm walking by the Spirit now. The Spirit illuminates these dark places in my, in my soul for the sake of transformation, to make me more like Jesus. Being led by the Spirit produces love, produces joy, produces peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those. Not just You don't get to pick which ones you do good at. The Spirit produces all of those if you walk by the Spirit. And Acts chapter 2 is the story of Jesus coming to the church with love and grace and pouring out His Spirit so that you and I could be witnesses, that we could declare this good news to the world. So would you bow your heads with me? And I want to read an alliteration of this, this text that we'll be in next week. I just want to read it over you and then pray over you. And listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited to you by God to you, and the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands. 
and was handed over to those who were against him. And they pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God united the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. And King David said it, it, he said it all when he said, I saw God before me for all time. Nothing can Pitch my tent in hope. I know you'll never dump me in Hades. I'll never even smell the stench of death. You've got my feet on the life path with shining sun joy all around. So let me be completely frank with you. King David is dead and King David is buried. But being also a prophet and knowing that God had solemnly sworn that a descendant would rule his kingdom, seeing far ahead he talked of the resurrection of the Messiah. No trip to Hades, no stench of death. This Jesus God raised up. And these were people who witnessed it. And then raised to the heights at the right hand of God and receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he poured out the Spirit. There's no longer room for doubt. God made him master and Messiah, this Jesus who was killed on a cross. So now, what do we do? I'll echo the words of Peter saying, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our master God invites. So, Father, would you extend an invitation to the one or the few in this room today who are far away from you? But they are walking in the flesh. God, would you move in their hearts right now? Would you give them the power of your Holy Spirit that indwells in them, that has dwelled in them to walk by the Spirit? To live a life of love and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Of us who fall short to walk. God, so many times we feel like our behavior is what's necessary your grace to come into our lives. And I'm just asking now, Father, truth, the reality, be this place this morning. And when we leave this place through the power of your spirit, may the words, the good news of Jesus be on our lips. And may we be ready and willing and anxious to share this good news with people first in our city, where we are, where we live, where we work every day. For some of us, you may be calling us to a special place. That you are sending your presence to the far off. That you're asking the far off to come, but you're sending. And so I would pray, Father, for those in this room who have a, have a burden to carry this message to a place outside of the city walls. God, would you remind them of the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them to accomplish everything that you intend to take place and that we would just be faithful and obedient to walk in it. What a joy it is to serve you, Jesus. May it always be a joy to serve you. We these things. Amen.